welcome to Act Your Age, a podcast where two adults dive into young adult books in order to discuss how their appeal transcends age and other boundaries. My name is Tasia. And I'm Corinne. And today we are talking about Lost in the Neverwoods by Aidan Thomas. But before we get into the book, as usual, Corinne, what have you been obsessing about this week? As if I don't already know. So we are recording this like nine days out after the release of Shadow and Bone, the series. And fair to say. It has not let up. Yeah, it's not let up. We've done nothing else during this time. I have just kind of been casually rewatching it and then more actively rewatching it. I just keep playing it in the background. I don't know if that helps their numbers. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get a second season. Just spent a lot of time on like TikTok and Instagram looking at photos and haven't really had much time for anything else. I think other than that, I guess... I am in the midst of a Happy Endings rewatch, which is just always a delight. So that's really fun. Uh, but that's like a very minor obsession <laughs> in in comparison to the Shadow and Bone Love, which is truly pervasive in every element of my life. Right. I feel like we've gotten, like, if anything, more unhinged about it as the days have gone by. Oh, yeah. It's not letting up in any way. No. Mm-mm. No. Nope. Nope. Uh, <laughs> so that's that's good. Um, I didn't really have a chance. Did I read anything else this week besides Neverwoods? I don't think that I did. So, so yeah, I, you know, eventually we'll move on. I just, it's not in the cards for us yet. I don't think. Yeah, no. We did read this book, which we were both looking forward to think, I think uh, a lot, especially after reading Cemetery Boys last year, which is one of the earliest books we covered on the podcast. Neither of us read this book before, diving into the podcast for it. And that's kind of rare for us. Uh, We usually, at least one of us are like, yeah, we're super gung-ho about this book. And this is very incorrect and kind of dramatic. The the phrase that comes to mind is failed experiment. That's not true. But I don't (laughs) think either of us is particularly like, oh my God, this is like an instant favorite of ours. Yeah, I don't necessarily think that we might have covered it otherwise if we'd read it before not because it we didn't like it or because it mm-hmm. wasn't good but just because I'm not sure that we have a ton to say about it yeah no and I think oh there's some great themes here which we're going to dive into in a minute and some and we think we kind of are in disagreement on some of the plot stuff that worked for us and didn't work for us so it's gonna be still things to talk about but in terms of what we try to focus in on this podcast either a really in-depth themes with a lot of interesting treatment of those themes or be just us being completely feral lunatics about it. Uh, I yeah. don't know that we're, <laughs> we've quite reached either of those, but still is a good book. And Thomas is a tremendously talented writer and I'm excited to talk about it. So I guess on that note, I will start off here with a book summary. In case you didn't know, Lost in Neverwoods is a Peter Pan retelling and, uh, and set in the modern day. And so these names will sound familiar to you. And so with that, I will dive in to our summary. Five years ago, 13-year-old Wendy Darling disappeared in the woods with her two younger brothers, John and Michael. Six months later, Wendy returned, but with no brothers and no memory as to what happened to them. Now 18, Wendy is still without memory of those six months and still haunted by the disappearance of her brothers. Her parents have withdrawn in their grief and despite having a daughter to care for, have remained distant. To make matters worse, children start going missing again and everyone looks to Wendy for answers about her own abduction that she doesn't have. Then one day while driving home from the hospital where she volunteers, she nearly hits a lump in the road, a lump that turns out to be the same boy she's been subconsciously drawing ever since she returned from the woods. He claims to be Peter Pan. And though Wendy is initially reluctant to believe his fantastical story, that he's the guardian of lost children in Neverland, and that he must find his shadow and reattach it before it takes more children to feed on their despair, she can't deny that he seems familiar and that his presence seems to spark the return of some of her memory. Peter tells her that the lost children, including her brothers, are being held captive by his shadow, and Wendy is the only person that can help him reattach it because she's done it before. Wendy and Peter begin to search for his shadow and for the ominous twisting tree Wendy keeps drawing on everything, all while dodging questions from the cops and Wendy's parents about the mysterious boy that has popped up in town, and while trying to deny the feelings growing between them. When Wendy and Peter finally give in and kiss for the first time, the shadow appears and binds Peter. Peter's magic has waned and weakened in his time in the real world, where he's begun to age, and where kissing Wendy has stripped him of the last of his power. 
The shadow is able to take Peter away, but Wendy tracks them to the gnarled tree she's been envisioning and finds the children trapped by the shadow. While she tries to figure out how to free the children, the shadow tells Wendy that Peter has lied to her. He never had her brothers, and Peter's job was never to take lost children to Neverland, at least not living ones. Peter took the souls of children who had died, especially those who had died under frightening and violent circumstances, to Neverland until they were ready to pass on. Her brothers have been dead the entire time, and the reason Neverland has gotten messed up and Peter's powers had weakened was because he took her, a living girl, to Neverland with him when she refused to leave her dead brothers. The grief of finding this all out is overwhelming, but knowing that this is what the shadow wants, she focuses on good memories of her brothers and encourages the children to think happy thoughts so they can break free. They do, and they help her grab the shadow and sew it back into Peter. Peter regains his magic, and Wendy returns to the children returns the children to the search parties, where she explains to her father and the cops that she has regained her memories. She and her brothers had been playing near the gnarled tree in the woods when her drunk neighbor mistook the boys for deer and shot and killed them, burying them under the tree. Not being able to tell the truth about Peter and his shadow, Wendy tells the police that another man kidnapped her and the other children. Wendy and her parents renew their relationship since they've finally been afforded closure on John and Michael. And the epilogue sees Wendy in college studying pre-med in hopes of becoming a pediatrician. So, lots of the Neverwoods. So I, I think kind of an interesting place to jar is talking about the original Peter Pan story and I guess our connections to it. I always really liked Peter Pan. I was actually in Peter Pan the musical when I was a sophomore in high school. I'm not at all surprised to hear that. <laughs> it was super fun. One of my favorite musicals I've ever been in. It's just like a very magical show. And we actually had like the Peters and Wendy Michael and John flying like in our auditorium, which was really cool. But also it was like the same year that a live action version of Peter Pan came out, like in the mid 2000s, early 2000s. And so I was always really liked it. But there is obviously like this darker side of the story, which is very sanitized in the musical and the Disney show and and all of that. And this story really leans into it. Yeah, I was kind of surprised. Like it it doesn't feel like that kind of book for most of it. And then suddenly you get to this part and you're like, oh wait, this just took such a turn into dark territory that it was kind of shocking, but I liked that. Yeah. So I guess there's always kind of been this discussion around Peter Pan about like what Neverland is and is it some sort of purgatory for children who have died and the era in which it was written when infant mortality rates were much higher. It's, it's all kind of there if you know where to look. But what I think we both really liked about this story is how it took a lot of that and built it into this kind of commentary on mental health, PTSD, depression, after encountering trauma in your life. And, and that aspect of all of it really, really worked for me. Mm-hmm. I liked the interplay of Wendy not having memories of Neverland on a surface level because the way the magic works is that once you grow up, you don't remember those things, but also on a deeper level of like memory repression. Yeah. that I thought that was really cleverly done and served as really like the heart of this story. One of the things I think that Aiden does particularly well is just writing characters that you connect with and their prose is very, I don't want to say simplistic in a lot of ways, but it's elegant in its simplicity. It evokes a lot of feelings without being overly flowerly or like using super big words or anything like that. And I think you do feel from the beginning Wendy's anguish at the fact that she has no memory of what happened to her brothers and where she went for those six months. Right. And the guilt that she's been harboring forever because as the older sister and knowing she was with them whenever X happened and not, not having protected them and having come back alone without them, like just the, the weight of that on her for the last five years and knowing how it's made her own parents withdraw from life and from her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a kind of subtler message here too, of like parental abandonment in the face mm-hmm. of grief. She really has to do like all the laundry herself. Just all the cooking and cleaning. Yeah. No one's doing any of that. Her parents are overprotective in so many ways. They, When things start happening in the town, they don't want her to go out and do anything. So that's all. It's so upsetting, but it totally makes sense. And then I also liked to, the, you know, some of 
Wendy's compulsive behavior, the washing of her hands repeatedly, because when she finally regained her memory and she was in the woods, her hands were dirty. And so she can't stand that feeling of having... She had her brother's blood underneath her fingernails. Yeah. So she is... Her hands are constantly cracked and dried. I mean, all of that is so visceral and you just really feel the pain that the Darling family is having, that particularly Wendy is having. And then how this kind of plays into the more magical side of the plot is this idea of shadows, which I think is another thing that's really cleverly done by Aiden, that shadows are are exactly what you you think that they would be in this world, something dark and in, insidious, and they kind of prey on weakness. Peter tells Wendy at one point when he's talking about his own shadow and then shadows in the, the non-magical world that Wendy lives in, he says, magic left this place so long ago that your shadows are weak and can't escape. They can take over a normal person, though. Those dark thoughts can devour a person and take all their happiness away. They want you to feel isolated and alone. It's like they suck the energy out of you and leave you with nothing. And I just wrote my notes, hello, depression. Yeah, I was just thinking like depression, kitty. Yeah, and she thinks in that moment, she's like, yeah, that makes sense. Like how I feel about my brothers, how my mom keeps having these dreams where she thinks she's talking to my brothers, how my dad has resorted to like alcoholism. And mm-hmm. it's, a really, it's really hard to read about in a lot of ways. It makes me sad. This, and especially because meanwhile, like while she's dealing with all of this internal stuff and all of this familial stuff, like children that she's close to are getting kidnapped. Like mm-hmm. people that she babysits, the children she watches over at the hospital while she volunteers, people that are close to her are getting kidnapped. And it's just like rehashing all of this stuff about her brothers and everything. And, and there's all these, you know, there's more children now that are piling up that she hasn't been able to protect. Yeah. So it's really heavy thematically for Wendy. It is super heavy thematically for Wendy in all of those ways. And what I do think this book kind of excels at though, then it is how it ties it into the magic of like the Peter Pan story, the one that we're familiar with the search for the shadow and then how the shadow for him, it's, it's taking all of the, darkness that he's never really had to confront and it's like really like materializing it in the main world and that for me is I still like think one of my bigger questions then about this novel is like okay what is Aiden trying to say about Peter and what Peter represents in this story in a lot of ways because we have okay the shadow is very insidious it's preying on fear it's kidnapping these children because it's it's basically eating it they're their fear and their anxiety and all of this, this stuff. And, but it's part of Peter. It's, it's separated out from Peter, but at the end of the day, the only way to save the situation is to meld Peter back together with his shadow to sew it back onto him, much like in the original story. And so I'm kind of like, what, what exactly are we meant to take away from that? I don't know what you think. I kind of have some thoughts I'm still like processing through. And most, mostly this makes me really sad because one of the things I absolutely loved about this book is Peter. Peter yeah. is a great character. I loved everything about Peter from day one on uh, in this book. Yeah, me too. I think that it really is just kind of a commentary on the problems with like toxic positivity right? Mm -hmm. Where you're just pretending like, you know, it's just like, oh, push through, push through. Everything's fine. Everything's great. Just, just, you know, ignore those bad things or whatever. And and it's like that separation, that like dissonance where you're like putting up this wall and pretending like these bad things aren't real or separating them from yourself. Like, like those things that we all belong, like it's all two parts of a whole, right? So yeah, I mean, that's kind of just what I took from it is that we need both of these parts, like we need the good parts and we need the bad parts because together they make us this complete person that we are. I like that. That makes sense to me too. But then, okay, one of the big issues that we know we're familiar with, with Peter Pan and Peter Pan lore is the idea that he can never grow up. And in this book, the reason that his shadow is able to separate out from itself is essentially because Peter grows up and starts to have feelings for Wendy, who he met when she was much younger he's drawn to her he takes her with to neverland because he can't bear to leave her behind and he has such a deep connection to wendy the more he seeks it out the easier it is for his shadow to separate away from him and be on its own 
And so then I'm like, okay, what are we getting at in terms of the idea of growing up, right? Because Peter Pan, a Peter Pan complex is a bad thing. Uh, mm-hmm. It's used as a, a negative commentary on someone who like doesn't want to grow up. In this book, Peter is growing up. The further he's separated away from his magic, he is he is growing up. And so I'm, you know, thinking is this a commentary on on growing up and what it means? And is it just that, yeah, like when you grow up, it's not going to be all of that happiness all the time. You have to start to face some of the the deeper, darker things within you as you're an adult, and it's just part of life. Is I, I kind of just talked myself into thinking that that's what we're saying here, but I don't I don't know what I'm. I don't know that I would think that. I think it just kind of really goes goes well with like the whole mythos of Peter Pan yeah. that he has to be young because it, this is his job, right? His job is to shepherd yeah. these lost souls from you know one plane to another and give them comfort but before they can pass on. And he can't do that as an adult figure. Yeah, he has to do that as like a child figure. So him, him growing up and and starting to have these kind of grown up feelings for Wendy and how that how that messes with his magic and it kind of makes him feel like he's he's missing on some other part of life that he's never going to be able to experience like that tracked really well for me just like on an on a narrative like thematic level yeah. i really liked that i did read a goodreads review that pointed out that as wendy kind of progresses through the novel and not necessarily say saying get gets better is an oversimplification, but as she works through her trauma and through what she experienced and begins to move past it through the epilogue or learns to reckon with it in a more healthy way through the epilogue, we almost, we see Peter's decline. He is completely, he's breaking down through all of this. And that I think for me is one of the things, I mean, this book is so heavy in so many ways, but I'm most melancholy about what this all means for Peter because so much of the book too is focused not just on Wendy realizing that she has stuff she has to deal with, but realizing that like there's no one to take care of Peter. He has this own really horrible task, especially when you find out the truth that he's shepherding lost souls so that they can move on and no one's there to take care of him. And yet he just has to do it. Yeah. And his world is like a revolving door, right? So he can't even necessarily get very close to these lost souls because they're moving on. He doesn't have anything permanent in his mm-hmm. life. Um, yeah. And that, yeah, it is really sad. And it is really sad speaking to like their their romantic kind of buildup in this book is that you know that nothing can nothing can ever happen here. They, right. they can have feelings for for each other, but nothing is going to happen because his job is too important. He event, he eventually realizes that she knows that, and it makes it really kind of a bummer because this whole time I was thinking like, please find a way for him to be able to stay and and just grow up with her. But I'm I'm glad that it actually didn't go in that direction because I think that would have been like the easier thing yeah. to do is to give it that like vague happy ending type of thing. But I think this was the stronger writing choice. I agree. I think the ending was, it was beautiful. It was melancholy, but it was what needed to happen. I do think too, it, it was a strong narrative choice to, to go down this path. I think it was also a really interesting commentary, I guess almost as like, not Peter is like a sacrificial lamb, but like someone has to do this horrible task and, and it's him. And he was made in so many ways to just be a beacon of happiness and light. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily the reality for anyone, even a magical being like Peter. And I think that's what makes his shadow so powerful, right? Yeah. When it's separated is because he does have this, this huge weight on him all the time. And, and so that would make that darker side of him. Right. Like have, have some like teeth. Yeah, I do like the idea too. The shadow says at one point it was his fear for losing Wendy that is what emboldened the shadow. So it's particularly like attacking that. But I think that also having a connection to a human and not someone who had died also just really puts a lot of these things into perspective for Peter. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it is is all uh, really sad at the end of the day because... He knows he has to go back and he he needs mm-hmm. to have his magic back. He has such an important role to play. He has such an important, just particularly for the story, he has to allow Michael and John to move on. They haven't been able to move on for five years because all of these things have been happening since since 
Peter brought Wendy back to Neverland. And that is just all so it's heartbreaking, but it's, it's so, it's so necessary. Yeah. And I do like that by the end, because the shadow goes on about how, you know, he'd been distracted by Wendy and he'd lost focus on his job and, and wasn't as interested in it necessarily because he kept thinking about Wendy, kept wanting to go back to Wendy. By the end, he, he says something like, I need to, I need to go back. Like I, I need to do this job, but then he corrects himself and he's like, I want to. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad at least for that for him because it is it is so sad and he's kind of like a really tragic figure, super tragic figure, super depressing job that he has is yeah. like one that only he can do. But I I do like that at the end he's kind of got like a renewed purpose in it. Yeah, one of the things I think that makes Peter so special is just that his his very like committed to what he has to do, and it's not just for these children. He just shoulders so much. The scene that absolutely broke me and made me start to cry, I'm going to actually cry thinking about it, is Wendy's mom like has dreams where she's talking to her brothers. Oh, God. And we've established early in the book that Peter's a really good mimic. He can mimic the sounds of crickets and things like that. So Wendy wakes up and she hears Michael and John's voices. And it's just Peter talking to her mom through one of these dreams where she thinks she's talking to Michael and John. And he tells her that they're that they're okay. I am crying right now because I was reading this and I was like oh shit this book snuck up on me because yeah and I think in the hands of a lesser writer it could all be so gimmicky and so cheesy but Aiden really creates just a really compelling charismatic and endearing figure in Peter and it it works so well that it kind of makes me forgive a lot of some, maybe some of the more plot issues that we might have with the book but oh god the, the, the stuff that's really good in this book is so good. I think that's such a good point that in somebody else's hands, this book would have been ridiculous on the cheese level, I think. Totally. But because Aiden is so good at connecting with those like deeper human emotions Mm -hmm. that it wasn't. Yeah. And I think then that kind of leads into talking about two things that I think worked a little better for me than they did for you. Mm One is the ending and how they overcome the shadow and then all the romance between Peter and Wendy. So while we're talking about the shadow and everything, might as well talk about how the shadow is defeated, which is Wendy starts thinking she's finally at that point has knows what happened to her brothers. The shadow has told her and she remembers everything then, but then she decides to push through and she's, even though she's mad at Peter, she realizes like his job is so bad. Like he, and he needs to keep doing this job. She's going to save him. And she starts thinking happy thoughts, which is very much part of the original Peter Pan story. Mm-hmm. And that's what pushes them to be able to capture the shadow and sew it back onto Peter. It worked for me. I don't think it worked as well for you. I think it works like on paper, like as a description, but because this this shadow was so terrifying through the entire book, right? Really powerful, really really scary. And then they get to it in, and while she's thinking these happy thoughts, she's also thinking really sad ones. And and it literally it just takes like a page, like not like half a page, yeah. And it's done. And I'm I don't know. For me, I feel like because of the the power of this thing, it should have maybe been a little bit longer. It should have taken a little bit more. I don't know. Like it was barely like a few words on the page and, and then the shadow was done. Yeah. It just felt too or too easy. Like I liked the, you know, thinking happy thoughts. And I liked that her thoughts were happy and sad because she's just realizing that her brothers are dead. Mm-hmm. So like that grief is threatening to overwhelm her, which is, but, but that just means it should have been harder. Right. Right. I don't know. I do think in some ways my big issue when I like step back to look at it when I was reading it, I didn't necessarily feel any of those things. But when you're done at the end, it's like almost an oversimplification of what it takes to overcome some of these mental health struggles. And I don't think that that's true. I think it was more like the catalyst for Wendy at that moment to finally have an understanding of what happened. That's what she's really needed. That's what her parents have needed to Mm -hmm. even begin the process of healing. And so on that level, it works for me. I do agree that it is a little simplistic plot wise, but I think that's also more a limitation of the story. It's in a lot of ways, the idea of like sewing the shadow back on when the shadow is so insidious, it's a little harder to, to believe the shadow has, has way more autonomy than you think 
of the shadow typically having in the Peter Pan story. So like, it shouldn't be so easy to just like pin it to the ground and sew it back up. And in that scene, like it's not even really struggling. Like she's basically tackled it with like children helping her and the yeah. kids are holding it down and she's just sewing it back on, but it's not saying anything. Yeah. This, this whole scene, like it's just quietly, you know, trying to sort of crawl away, but not really. Yeah. Like it's just not putting up the fight I would have expected from it. Yeah. So that kind of took me out of it a little bit. I was like, this should be more of a thing. <laughs> like, but it was over so quick. I kept expecting like, you know, I was like, okay, now it's going to be possessing Peter. Yeah. Like I was expecting the next level, like the next boss level. Right. And it never came. And I was like, oh, that's it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I, I agree with that too. I think I was just so, like I said, I was like emotionally laid bare from that scene where yeah. Peter is doing the voices and he also there's some really nice moments with him and Wendy towards the end of the book too, where she's like, didn't you ever want a different life or anything like that? And he's like, I never thought about it. Not till I met you. So I'm like already like a puddle. Mm-hmm. And then you, it comes on the heels of absolutely devastating reveal about what happened to John and Michael, which was, I was horrified. <laughs> I kept wanting to text you. You hadn't been, you hadn't gotten to that part yet when we were, yeah. you know, obviously we were both reading these books at the same ish time. I was a little bit ahead of you and I'd gotten to that and I was just like, I need to <laughs> yell about this, but you're not there yet. Yeah. That was, I don't know why I was picturing that it was going to be something even not that this isn't terrible, but like you, you get the reveal too that it's like souls that have had like, they've had such a traumatic death that it's hard to move on. And so I was like really afraid it was going to child abuse or something like mm-hmm. just again, I don't want to say worse, but just like extra insidious that, I mean, this is an accident. It's a- well, something intentional, not yeah. Correct. Uh, yeah. That's a good way to put it intentional, but still I think again, it's a testament to Aiden's writing that that literally walked me over the head, and I was like, "Oh my god, poor Wendy, poor Michael and John." I, I just because I was like, "Those poor babies." Michael's was like seven years old, no, and John was ten. Like that is just horrifying. It's so sad. It is so sad. And then I was like going back and reading some other parts too, and this is actually one of my favorite swoon moments. But and this will lead us into talking about the romance here in a second. But when Wendy and Michael are at that like natural pool, and he's kind of flying and like floating her over the water they hear a shotgun and it like immediately startles her and it's like oh okay like here's her ptsd like it is seated but she doesn't know what that is um and why that that's why that is triggering i mean yeah it's a loud noise but like that's that's really good yeah no that's 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 really good i hadn't i'm literally just connecting these dots right now i hadn't thought back to to that yeah so i think maybe like going back and reread to this book is gonna um work out i think maybe even better in a lot of ways although i don't know if i can mm-hmm. ever bring myself to reread it because it does make me very sad but to bring a full circle i it, it worked for me if i don't squint too hard at it i guess mm-hmm. and that's another thing about the ending to like in in relation to that you know her finding out that their neighbor had been the one to kill her brother's is at the end when she's returning the kids and, you know, the cops and everybody come in. Mr. Davies is part of that group because his children have gone missing. And she's just like, I remembered what happened. He shot John and Michael. And he's just like, yeah, I did. And like immediately I'm like, this is not. Yeah. <laughs> and that took me out of the moment too, where it's, it, this is the climax of the book, right? Like I, I want to be there. I want to be there emotionally and mentally. I want to be in that moment, but him just, readily giving this information up did not i don't know maybe i feel like this like because we've talked a lot about how ya can kind of fit into two categories it's the ya that's that's about teenagers before anybody Mm -hmm. and ya that is uh about teenagers for teenagers i feel like this one kind of fits into that second category which is generally a more difficult category for me to connect with Mm -hmm. um i did connect with this on on levels but i think these kinds of plotty things that are they they took me out a little bit and i think that kind of puts it more in the second category for me just because you know just the, the logical like connections my brain wants to make aren't there necessarily and it's yeah. difficult i almost look at that as more of a indication that like 
that's not what Aiden was focused on here. Like, yes, we right. need to know what happens to Michael and John, but like what happens to Mr. Davies, no one really like, cares about. And so we're more interested in Wendy and Peter and what that means for them. And I think as a, for me, when I was reading it, I was like, I don't give a shit about Mr. Davies, like burn in hell. Yeah. I'm ready, but not ready to be emotionally destroyed by this inevitable goodbye between Peter and Wendy. Yeah. I was just like, eh. See, I wanted to, I wanted to focus on that, but it was just, I was that moment where he just instantly, like, like he was a Scooby-Doo villain or something, um, instantly just gave up the plot. And I was like, all right, wait, what? Like that made me think more about him than I wanted to. Yeah. No. I, the fact that that seemed so like illogical. I can do that too. I do think in some ways there are some, some of the plot points here, I think too might a again be because Aiden's not interested in some of those. That's mm-hmm. not what the focus of this book is, but B, this book was also written by Aiden while they were in college and as part of like a thesis program. Yeah. And I think that um, particularly in reading Cemetery Boys, which was released first, but written after their storytelling ability, I think has improved a lot. So I'm not going to hold that against them at all because what you can see a lot of the seeds of everything that I loved about Cemetery Boys in this book and so I'm just kind of like, okay, like I'll rush for well, like, those things. The the romance, for example, is great. Like yeah. the <laughs> that kind of like fl- the flirting and shit, like the, the stuff that we love so much from Cemetery Boys, like mm-hmm. you said, all the seeds of it are here. Yeah. So let's talk about that now because I thought that was all great. I think it's so clever how Aiden pushes to age up Peter Pan to make this. Mm-hmm acceptable it's like how is this gonna be a romance because this boy is like 13 mm-hmm. years old and wendy is 18 and then he was just growing up through the whole thing it was right like, good job yeah it, that worked out really well she doesn't start noticing him or anything until he's like very clearly older than her and mm-hmm. they have a very deep connection anyway and it, uh, it but yeah so the romance stuff really really worked for me Again, that's what Aiden, I think, excels at. The building of their relationship felt so genuine. Just Peter from the beginning, having the memories and being so disappointed that Wendy didn't all just really made me sad. And all their little dates worked really well for me. I, a a pile of swoon on some of the stuff. I loved I loved all their dates and all of their romantic moments in the moment, but there was always, again, like something po- taking me out of it. And it was in this case, I think I was just so, I was so scared about all the missing children that yeah. I was like, every time there, he was like, let's stop and get ice cream as they're like trying to solve this mystery and trying to find these children. And I was like, okay, this moment's cute, but what? Like, yeah. So- what? Like, are you, are you sitting here flirting and eating ice cream when like, and at this moment, she thinks that her brothers are missing with these other children. And I'm like, your your brothers have been missing for five years and you're flirting yeah. and eating ice cream. I don't know. Playing in a waterfall. I I don't know. I, I was just, I was very stressed out, but I did love those moments. Like mm-hmm. I thought their interactions in them was really good. Peter was just so charismatic. Just the romantic tension was just so good. So good. Uh, I really, I really loved it. But yeah, there was always a part of my, my brain going, can you please find these children? Yeah. I am stressed. You know, and it's interesting. I've been thinking about it because we talked about that off air and I was like, huh, like it didn't really bother me, but I do see it. And it is in a lot of ways similar to kind of what's going on in Cemetery Boys, right? Like you do get this, this romance between Adriel and um, Julian and there's a lot of shit going on. Like people are disappearing around them too. And there's a ticking clock, right? In both situations where, mm-hmm. where you know, Julian, they think that he's going to, his his spirit needs to move on and they're, they're counting down to that. And Peter, his magic is waning and waning and they need to do this before he kind of runs out of magic. And so I was trying to figure out like what the difference is. And I think that it's maybe A, that it's like kids lost in peril, for sure has something to do with it. And I do think it is um, because that taking clock is so intimately connected to them in a way that's not Mm -hmm. quite there in Cemetery Boy. So I I totally get it. I mean, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm sort of misremembering Cemetery Boys, but from what I remember, I don't feel like they go on a lot of distracting trips. That's true. Like, I feel like everything that they're doing is in service to this, this mystery and they just happen to be falling in love at the same time, which is great. Yeah. 
Um, in this one, I feel like they're taking unnecessary detours just to build a romantic thing between them when there's like Missy. But again, like I, I think you are definitely right too that it is, it just has, it's like missing kids. Yeah. And that like, <laughs> as like a parent too, I'm like, yeah. Anything where kids are involved, I get I get very stressed sure. out. Yeah. So like I'm reading this book, biting my nails down and shit. I'm just like, find these kids. Yeah. So I, I don't know if, there, if there's like a combination. There's a column A, there's a column B that's yeah. like sort of effect. But no, there, I mean, the romance definitely did work for me. I did like it. There's, again, so much about this book that does really work. Aiden is a, a master at this these feelings, whether it be romantic. Uh, this book just oozes feeling. I think our bigger issues are more like plot and speed. You know, this all happens mm-hmm. very fast. Peter is aging very quickly. And that's why they kind of have to move. So yeah, I guess see how it is distracting. It's like, okay, let's just go like swimming in this pool. And at that point, his magic is draining too. This is, we'll talk about my favorite swoon moment here in a minute too. But my, Wendy actually says to him, you know, shouldn't you be saving your magic? He's like, mm, probably. I'm like, <laughs> all right, Peter. He was, he was so, so good. Peter, Peter was so, such a cheeky little thing. I loved him. Mm-hmm. He was talking about like cartoons that you had a crush on when you were a kid. And number one was always Aladdin for me. But I mean, when you like stop back and look at it, like the cartoon version of Peter Pan, he also is cute. So like, this is nice to have like a Peter Pan I can crush on appropriately. He might have been like that early intro to liking assholes too, right? Because mm. <laughs> Peter Pan in the Disney movie is a total dick. Yeah. Like he, he's so mean to like, I mean, not mean, but like. He treats Wendy like his personal servant and lets, lets other people fuck with her constantly. So this is much more mature Peter and a much more like caring and charismatic Peter than I think mm-hmm. a lot of um, retellings do. And I, everything about Peter worked for me, his patience and his just kind of his interactions with children. It was very sweet. So sweet. And yeah, no, it, everything Peter really really did work for me and mm-hmm. it, when you look at all of this in the abstract a, a really nice romance a great commentary on mental health and a, just a really melancholy story it all does really work for me i think again if you just like squint a little too hard at it, it kind of some of the plot yeah. things don't quite work for us as we wanted them to it is a beautiful book. It, it has a lot of really, really good stuff in it. You know, I automatically bought this when it came out. I pre-ordered it because I love Cemetery Boy so much and I wanted to support Aiden and continue to write anything they write. Yeah. Happy to. Oh no, especially especially as they continue to grow so much mm-hmm. as as an author. I mean, not that I think there's a huge like cavernous gap between the quality of Lost in the Neverwoods and Cemetery Maybe Boys. Either. I think you can definitely see that they're the same author and mm-hmm. that they're just slightly improving a little bit. Like right. you would from your first book, which was written as like a thesis to your second Absolutely. book. But yeah, definitely still the same author. Still, it's a great book. Yeah. And I am extremely looking forward to seeing just how they continue to grow as a writer. Yeah. I do think one thing then before we get into our superlatives that we want to talk about was this really interesting Twitter thread that Aiden posted back in June and then bumped again ahead of the release of this book and essentially deals with flack that they have gotten for releasing Cemetery Boys, which is a queer Latinx focused book to Mm -hmm. then writing and re- or i guess releasing because technically again they wrote lost in the neverwoods first a very cis white ostensibly straight story and a lot of people have come for aiden i guess online in expressing disappointment and anger that they have the audacity to write Whatever they want. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, they they wrote this long Twitter thread and then they bumped it again several months later because this was still coming up. But, you know, this story obviously means a lot to Aiden. You don't write this dark subject matter unless you have experience with this or some connection to a story like this. And they say that in this Twitter thread. But this is the part that really like sticks out to me, which is that that it's super problematic to dictate to writers that they can only write about their marginalizations, which ding, 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 like hit the nail on the Mm -hmm. head. It's just the, the audacity of people to try to suggest that they should write otherwise 
is just it's so reductive it is so like it's it's taking this entire ass person and simplifying them reducing them down to just their marginalizations and being like this is the only thing that you can talk about this is the only thing you can identify with this is your purpose in the world is to be a representative of this marginalized group forever in everything that you do and it is just so dehumanizing And it makes me so mad. I'm like, literally just let people write what they want. Right. Let them do what they want. He, It is not Aiden's responsibility to represent the queer Latinx community in everything they do for the rest of their lives. Yeah, like, it's it's ridiculous. And also think of the leeway given to straight white authors through all mm-hmm. time to write any other group besides their own. And exactly. Uh, co-opting those experiences and the experience at issue here is not the character's race or sexuality but it's trauma which is universal and it's yeah the the whole thought of that is ridiculous one of the other points that they make in this thread which i think is really great too they say i could have retconned and copy edits i could have just changed wendy's race or maybe made peter trans but y'all that shit is so bullshit and i'm not going to try to pull any jkr bullshit on y'all mm-hmm We talk a lot on the show, too, about diversity and how white authors can can write it in more. And oftentimes, a lot of ways they can do it is just kind of where it's like they're copy pasting. They're just taking out the the references to straight or white and replacing them with something else as if that boils that entire identity down to just like words right and then and not, not a lived experience yeah and in some ways that type of tokenism is is so harmful and it is such an interesting story to continue or an interesting thing to continue to chew through and think about like how can you have more diverse worlds particularly in fantasy where you have more leeway to like anything can go if we've got like wings mm-hmm. and shit we can get like other types of the characters in there but uh, so I, I really like that point though and it, again it makes you continue to think of how how authors can tackle some of these things. And I, I just really liked that point that you can't just copy and paste and change things. It's that that's not mm-hmm. how it works. And it would be a disservice to the again, the story that is meant to be told here, which is one about mental health, which is really compelling, but also a disservice to the groups that you're just kind of subbing in just for diversity points. And right. I, I also think. A, a book by a queer author is a queer story. It, it is. Yeah. So I, I hope that they don't have to deal with this bullshit more going forward. I hope that they continue to write whatever stories that they want without expectations. I mean, as long as, as, long as people on Twitter uh, continue to be mm-hmm. largely made up of people that have never heard of critical thinking, then, mm. you know, they probably will have to rehash this conversation over and over yeah. again. But you know, at least they've got a nice thread to <laughs> just repost every time. Uh, that sucks, though. But I liked yeah. the book, Aiden. It was great. I'll read anything you you write in the future. And I, again, I say we were you know kind of critical of the book. There's a lot of things I like. I feel like we tend to you know in star rankings. I feel like everything we read on this show in a lot of ways, most of the time, is like a five star read for us, mm-hmm. and we we talk about because we love it. This is a four star read for me. I still really liked a lot of it. It, it it worked really well. And the thing is, even if even if it was a five star, we'd still be critical of it. We are critical of everything yeah. that we talk about on yeah. here, which is sort of the point. We can love it and it can still have flaws. Yeah. And you know, yeah. So just like anything else. I got some great um pre-order swag from this, including some art of Peter. I can't wait to like hang next to my desk because then I like feel weird being like, mm, here's my I'm a Peter <laughs> Pan art. Like <laughs> That's my emotional support teenage boy. <laughs> well, he, he can hang up next to my other emotional uh, support teenage boys, Yadriel and, and Julian, because I also, uh, I don't know, I forget, Aiden had some sort of campaign going around the holidays. Oh, yeah, wasn't it a Christmas thing? It's yeah, Christmas, okay, it's I a Christmas that. card with them in Christmas sweaters, and it's signed by Aiden. And it was like in exchange for making a donation to like a trans support group or something. Though I was happy to do that. So yes, I know I already I have that. Adriel and Julian. I do too. Hoping we get more in, in their world, but we'll see. Again, I'll take anything you give me, Aiden. I will read them all. You're going to make me fall in love with teenage boys and make me feel weird about it. So <laughs> thanks for that. Thank you. On that note, let's talk superlatives. Let's do it. All right. Favorite quote. I will go first because I have two. 
So we'll go around Robin here. And yet Peter himself radiated the fantastical, a boy plucked from her dreams and her mother's stories and set before her. He was something else altogether. He was stardust and the smell of summer. I like love that quote. You get this visceral feeling of what Peter Mm -hmm. feels like. It's a great example of, again, the elegance and the simplicity of Aiden's prose. It gave me chills when I read that. Yeah. What about you? I think people are more frightening than the dark. He said, a person can stand right in front of you and be dangerous without you ever knowing it. And I think it not only is just this like good foreshadowing because literally her neighbor killed her brothers, Mm -hmm. but also, I mean, it's just true. Yeah. So true. And then we didn't talk about the very, very end yet, but this, these quotes are literally the last words of the book. But in the end, we flash forward a year when he's finishing up her first year of college and you know, one of the things too in, in Peter Pan lore is, you know, whether or not Wendy remembers him and if she's still going to remember him. And she is thinking about Peter in that epilogue and she is just laying there reflecting and she's outside. And this is what it says. Wendy could have sworn she heard the soft chirping of crickets. Wendy's breath caught in her throat. She opened her eyes. And I just, I love this idea that perhaps Peter still, I mean, he does come to the normal, the, to the mortal world. He can give her signals that he's there. And I also just love the idea of, you know, she opened her eyes. It's very much like, is it the last line of a tree grows in Brooklyn that she opened the window? It's again, just a very, like a, a good way of saying like possibility is ahead even if I think the last line of um, the Raven King where, you know, as Ronan laid down, he began to dream. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It sets forward just endless possibility mm-hmm. and it's hopeful on a literal level that perhaps this is Peter. And it's just hopeful that Pete, that Wendy's going to continue on her journey. And I just, I closed yeah. the book and I hugged it to myself. So always a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> and she, for my own mental well-being, I'm choosing to lose Peter and the thing is still each other, even though he's a 13 year old boy. Now it's fine. Like, don't think too hard about <laughs> We're going to hand wave, whistle past that cemetery. Okay. Favorite character and favorite character arc. I mean, Peter is the favorite, obviously. He's charming, charismatic, good with kids. He's, he's got it all. Yes. And Wendy for arc, because I really do. I do like in the epilogue where it's not like she, she goes home and she makes up with her parents and everybody's fine and great. It's like, she goes to therapy. She puts all this work in, she does all of this, you know, so, you know, and she still struggles. So it's not just like, a, Oh, we solved the mystery and now everybody's happy and okay. It is a journey and it's a continuing journey for her. And I like that. Yeah, I totally agree on both counts too. And then just to add to Wendy's arc, you know, she thinks that she wants to be a nurse like her mom. And it's kind of like, obviously nurses are great. And she acknowledges that throughout the book that she, you know, wants to help. There's nothing less. Correct. Right. But like, it's also that she doesn't want to go to med school because she just can't like push herself to like think beyond all that. She's like, no, I should do like the practical thing. I don't have to go to all this extra school. And like, it's too hard. And I don't know if I can do it. And then she decides that she's going to go to medical school. So I like that for her too. We love nurses. Nurses are great. But again, for, for her, it was the mental impediments to going was she was holding herself back. That was great. Exactly. Favorite swoon moments. <laughs> you have a longer one, so I'll go first. Okay. Uh, mine is just literally the second before everything blows up in their face and the shadow shows up. They're like, like nose to nose practically and about to kiss. And he says, can I stay with you? And it is just chef's kiss. I love it. Aiden continued to write all the all the romances, please, because the romantic tension is just beautiful. Yeah. This moment I already alluded to, and I tried to distill it down, and it's hard because you really just kind of have to read the whole scene, but they're hiking through the woods, and they are trying to find the tree um, that when he keeps dreaming about, and then they find instead, like, this beautiful cliff overlooking, like, a natural pool, and they have this, like, again taking a break from the search for the missing children. <laughs> However, again, <laughs> stuff aside from that, it's like this beautiful spring. And it's nice because, you know, you need sometimes those moments of, of levity and relaxation in order to like keep doing the hard things you need to do. But Wendy's mm-hmm. like super relaxed in the water and it's when she's starting to have feelings for, for Peter. And I'm just going to read part of it. Peter grinned down at her, her soft chuckles gently reverberating in his chest, pressed against her arm, light sprinkled in his wet auburn hair, a drip of water glinted from the tip of his nose. Peter wet his lips. 
She saw his Adam's apple bob. He opened his mouth as if to say something, but the words seemed to die in his throat, followed by a loud, uneven laugh. Wendy felt like she was swinging out over the cliff again, weightless and short of breath. She couldn't even feel the water anymore. Brow furrowed, Wendy glanced down. They weren't in the water anymore. Instead, they hovered in midair above it. It's okay, he said, calm and steady. I've got you. Shouldn't you be saving your magic, she asked, nearly whispering. Peter's dimples came out to play. Probably. And it like goes on. So he's just like the charm. <laughs> it's very swoony. It's very swoony. Like like the perfect, like just the definition of swoon, right? Mm-hmm. They're literally floating on their feelings. <laughs> so much. Think happy thoughts. Okay. Well, here we are. They're <laughs> flying in the. Yeah. No. It was, it was great. They're, they only have a couple of moments of real tenderness here, where they actually get like physicality with each other. Just a couple of really sweet kisses and. Yeah. I'm like, well, Paul. I know it's, it's very melancholy. It's like, this is melancholy, could be the title of this book. Ultimately, yeah. I ended up healing, but I'll revisit those nice moments and uh, enjoy them going forward. So, well, we did it. Guys, a short episode. Look at us go. Remember when this used to be like the normal length of our episode? No, I don't because I think it's happened like <laughs> twice ever. <laughs> I know. I guess I shouldn't say the normal. <laughs> this is what we wanted our normal to be, but yeah, uh, that has never happened. But so I'm glad, and I hopefully you are glad too, listener, that you don't have parallel where you are. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Uh, but on that note, Tasha, do you want to do the honors of announcing what our next book will be uh, in two weeks? And we're turning back to more of our every two week schedule now that we're out of the Greek verse. Sure. Um, okay, so the next book we're covering in two weeks is going to be The Fault in Our Stars by John Green, a YA modern classic uh, with a special guest. And I believe we are also going to try to watch the movie, too, and do a little yes. compare and contrast again like we did for Pursuing Wallflower. So really looking forward to that. Uh, so that'll be in two weeks. But until then, Teja, where can our listeners find you online? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Ragey Cakes. And I'm on Instagram at Rin underscore Reads. You can find the podcast at Actia Age on Instagram and Twitter, or you can shoot us an email if you'd like at ActiaAgePod at gmail.com. And finally, if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, that would be extremely helpful to us. We'd very much appreciate it. Get us up in there. Search results. That would be fantastic. But other than that, friends, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Bye. Bye.